Good morning. This morning we will be reading Genesis 8, 13 through 9, 1. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the attention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Thank you, Sarah, so much for reading. So if you have been here over the, I guess, last couple months, you know we are in a series going through the book of Genesis. We started in Genesis 1. We're into Genesis 8 and 9 today. The series is focusing our attention on knowing God. And you could probably pick up by where Sarah picked up in the reading that the last time, a couple of weeks ago, we left Noah and his family and a bunch of animals in the ark. They were in there protected by God. God was protecting them. Scripture speaks in Genesis 6 and 7 of actually how God judged the world, judged the world in its sin with a, with a, a flood that actually the, the terminology is almost decreation, decreating the world that had just been created, the flood which had a devastating impact. Noah and his family turn out. And scripture tells it they turn out to be the lone survivors. Sarah read in Genesis 8, and a lot of people who've read Genesis a long time, read the story of Noah a long time, a lot of scholars will say that kind of the peak of the story of Noah is Genesis 8.1. So she didn't read it, but it, it is a, a highlight. So Genesis 8.1 says this, starts this way, God remembered Noah. And then goes on to say, you know, everybody else in the ark with him. But God remembered Noah. And to speak of God remembering something or remembering someone pushes our categories a little bit. I mean, I understand how we would speak of remembering someone or remembering something. It's like, oh yeah, that's right. I, I couldn't think of that, but now I remember. And that's the way we would use the word remembering. But this is God we're speaking of. What does it mean for him who knows everything? What does it mean for him to remember someone or to remember something? This may be a helpful 
place for us to think about vocabulary and how things are, how words are used. I love uh, one Old Testament scholar who's written a ton, Derek Kidner. He gives us this picture that God remembering is a combination of his faithful love and his timely intervention. I think that's extremely helpful, and I think he is spot on in that description. So God is not going, oh yeah, I forgot, and that's not what he's doing, but it is an idea of his faithful love and his timely intervention. When God remembers, he intervenes. God moves toward the the object, the person of his memory. So I, I want us to keep that, especially because we're, we're recognizing God remembered Noah, so he loves Noah and he is going to faithfully intervene. What does that look like? Well, in Genesis 8, the beginning of it, and you can read this and, or, or skim it or see exactly how it all happens, but there's basically details in verses 1 to 14 of how the, the waters from the flood begin to subside and begin to go down. The, the earth was in reality, like dried up, and you can dig into the details of that. Verse 15 of Genesis 8, God says to Noah, it's time to go. It's time to move out. And what is really just kind of a, an, a chaotic probably scene is all, everybody, you know, everybody, all the animals exiting this boat. But here's where I want us to spend some time today. I really want us to put ourselves in the place of Noah exiting the boat and what will life look look like post-flood? What will life look like after Noah's been rescued and now he's going to be living in a world that is post-flood? And to help us today, I actually want to take a few of the images from God's word, a few of the word pictures because I think logos or icons or images are helpful. We can look at that image and then fill in the rest of things with that. So maybe if we just get a few words and that really cements in in what we're looking at today, that actually will help us fill in the gaps of what else uh, God is saying. So we're going to start with the image of an altar, an image of an altar. I want you to look at verse 20 because it says in that passage, then Noah built an altar. So Noah, again, we're post-flood. Noah's come out out of the boat. And Noah has built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. There's some idea of the stability post-flood. The idea is while the earth remains, There's going to be stability and predictability, sustainability here. Seed time, harvest, cold, heat, summer, winter, day, night shall not cease. Noah comes off the boat and doesn't build a tower, doesn't build a house, doesn't say he plowed fields immediately. It says he built an altar, and that altar reminds us, especially in this passage, that true worship pleases God. That altar is an image that I do want burned on our mind today. That true worship pleases God. You use an altar for, in religious purposes, you would use an altar for a couple purposes, right? We see those in the Bible. So one of the reasons why you would use an altar is to make a sacrifice for sin. It would at least be some acknowledgement of sin. So 
you can imagine you know, a stone altar is put together and an animal becomes a symbolic substitute representative, a payment for sin, like a covering, a, an atonement. So we want to be reconciled or we want to be okay with God. We want things to be clear. And there's a picture of sacrifice, at least showing we know and we acknowledge we're sinners. So that, that is certainly one reason why you would put something on an altar. But there's another reason, and that would be not so much just dealing with sin, but also you would place something in, on an altar as a gift. As an, it, it really would be an offering. Basically, you're saying by that gift or that offering, this is something of mine that I am giving to you. That's the picture. I put it on the altar. It's a recognition of I belong to you. Everything I have is yours. The furthest thing is like, okay, we're going to try to bribe God. The idea is, this is a, a gift of my acknowledgement of who you are. And Noah may be doing both. I'm really not certain. The text doesn't specify. He may be acknowledging a sin. He may be giving a gift. But there is an offering on the altar. What is most, I guess what stands out the most to me is, God is pleased by this. I mean, it gives us some human, human images where it's like the aroma comes up to God. And it is a pleasing aroma to him. God is pleased. What is so important for us to realize is God doesn't send mixed signals on this. Which is very different than if you read of all sorts of pagan gods, all the gods that humans create, which there are many. Little G-O-D-S, right? All of those are arbitrary. The gods we make one minute they're happy, the next minute they're sad. One minute they're angry, the next minute they're in a good mood. One minute they would receive an offering, the next minute they would ignore an offering. One, one day they would make life great, and the next day for no, no reason at all, they would just make life miserable. This is like the gods we would create. Frankly, that's the gods we create because that's the people we are. For unexplainable reasons, one minute I... I'm like in a good mood and then the next minute I might find myself in a bad mood. One minute I might treat someone with respect and the next minute I might blow them off. Why do we do that? But God doesn't. God receives this offering. And this is even despite the fact that God knows exactly who we are. It says this was a pleasing aroma to God even though he knew every intention of the heart of humans has this evil tendency. God is still pleased with true worship. God receives offerings and is pleased by them. What we don't do in light of that is, obviously you didn't walk into a big rock pile here and there won't be any goats or birds or cows trotted in here. I don't have a knife we're not going to do that. The fire marshal will appreciate that we aren't going to do burnt offerings today. But make no mistake, this idea of offering and sacrifice is not just a concept that's reflected back in ancient times. I know that because Hebrews speaks of us offering, Hebrews 13, us continually offering up a sacrifice of praise to God, not a 
not whining, not complaining, but a praise to God that is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Romans 12.1, which I don't know that any verse in the Bible has shaped my life more than Romans 12.1 has. Paul's saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the, on the basis of the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies. Offer. This is what God wants. It's pretty simple. He wants it all. He wants all of you. He wants your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our sacrifice, though, what I appreciate about this passage is, is it tells us when we do that, God is pleased. I lived way too long of my Christian life thinking that if you were to draw up the countenance of God, which is a hard thing to think about, but stick with me on that. If you were to draw up the countenance of God, I, I think I lived a long, long part of my Christian life thinking generally his countenance toward me was nothing but a scowl and an occasional eye roll at the mess I make of my life. Communicating nothing but disappointment in how I should have done better and I should have tried harder. And God is doing a work rewiring my soul to realize that he doesn't have a permanent scowl. I'm confident in that because the Bible says that those who are trusting in Jesus are actually in Christ. And when God looks at Jesus... I and mean, we, we have his words on record, the father's words saying, this is my beloved son. I am pleased with him. When I'm in Christ, God is pleased. You know, if, if human fathers and mothers know how to extend like approval and don't, don't, I mean, even sorry dads and sorry moms want to at least acknowledge to their kids at some point in time, you know, you have really pleased me. I couldn't be more proud of you. I just want that to rest on you when you think of the perfect Heavenly Father and when you offer true worship of here I am, Lord. How pleased he is by that. I hope that image of an altar drives you to realize true worship does please him. There's another image, though. There's another image in this passage, and that is the image of blood. The image of blood and I'm grateful Nick chose for us to sing today nothing but the blood of Jesus. I think that's helpful in, in making sure we remember these categories. So when you go to Genesis 9, so you leave Genesis 8, you go into Genesis 9, you read the word blood a few times. So can we, can we look at that? So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is Genesis 9. Verse 2 says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. And upon every bird of, this, bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives will be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is the blood. For your lifeblood, I, I would require a reckoning. From every beast I will require. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. You read the word blood a couple times there. Life blood. The idea is blood, the image of blood, gives us an understanding that God values life. 
God values life. When you read Genesis 8 and 9, they actually sound a lot like Genesis 1 and 2 in some ways. So you read of God blessing, be fruitful, multiply. You read of plants and animals, land and sea, the heavens, the earth. I mean, you read of that in both Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 8 and 9, God is doing something new here. But there is something, there, is, there are things that are different in creation. So one is that animals are going to be scared. There's going to be a dread and a fear. Things like that did not exist before. If we're reading, understanding, I think that's right. And now there's something where it's just going to hardwire into animal life and human life. There's going to be a conflict, a constant conflict. Humans are supposed to have dominion over this world, which is more about a stewardship, definitely not an exploitation. But there's a, there's a prohibition here related to blood. And it's said in a couple of different ways, like, one is you're not supposed to eat blood in verse 4. But verse 5, I mean, it, it, it ratchets it up a little bit more to say there's a, a reckoning of life. If you take someone's life, if you, if you take that, then your life, your blood is going to be required. Why all the talk about blood? I think you skip a couple books over in the Old Testament. You come to the book of Leviticus and you, you see why it's so important. In Leviticus 17.11, it says, The life of a creature is in the blood. God says, I've appointed blood to you so that you'd make an atonement on the altar for your lives since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. There's something about blood, which is like we recognize life and death. I mean, the idea of blood, the thought of blood, sometimes even, I'm certainly there, my, I've got a sister that is extremely squeamish when it comes to any, anything related to blood. Like she is out of the room, out of the picture pretty quickly. Why is it that blood even makes us realize our own mortality or our own just recognizes we're, we're not going to be for I mean, Life and death is connected to blood. God values life so much. This teaching is foundational for why many, if not most Christians, see this as teaching why we would, why we would recognize something like capital punishment. We certainly don't revel in it. But when you take someone's life, I mean, there's such a high bar here, but when you take someone's life, life is so sacred. It's not that it doesn't matter. It does matter. Not every Christian is convinced, and I want to acknowledge that. Some, some would see, yes, it says this here, but after Jesus comes, there's a, it's kind of a, a different sort of era. In my study, in my reading of Romans 13, doesn't seem like anything changes this idea. But wherever Christians land, life matters extremely. It's extremely valuable. We protect it. Every image bearer conceived. We protect that life. We care about that life. In a sad, wicked, violent world, this is interesting, right? Noah's going out of the ark. And provision is made of like, no, all of your descendants are going to live in a violent world. There's got to be some regulation of that. And here we see blood speaking to the value that God places on life. There is another image, though. So we have the altar and we have blood. And again, we're, we're seeing how those things are communicating a lot to us in these powerful images. The next image that I want you to think about is that of a rainbow. As a matter of fact, look at verse 8. 
and listen, I want your ears to be dialed into every time the word covenant is used. I, I think I counted seven times the word itself is used. So it says, then God said to Noah, this is Genesis 9, verse 8, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow, this is the rainbow, I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the, the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that it's between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Again, the image that I want put on our head, actually put on our heart, is that of a rainbow, which is going to remind God's people that his promise endures. God's promise endures. I told you, the, the word covenant, again, I think I counted seven times it's used. Covenant, again, another word you've got to know if you're reading the Bible, it is something that is a binding promise. And when God makes those promises, he he does those for our benefit. He is making a promise with good intentions towards human beings. He is making, he enters into covenant for our benefit. God does this regularly in scripture. And then I also read those words and I hear like, never again, never again am I going to wipe out. Never again am I going to destroy. God is promising something. Not because like, you're going to get better and better and better and I won't have to, I won't have to judge you anymore because you're going to, you're going to really up your game when it comes to doing what's right. That is not going to happen. He knows that's not going to happen. He is making this covenant with his people, even, even knowing we're going to live in a world of sin. This covenant, I hope you heard, it actually involves more than just God and Noah. But did you read? It, ex it extended, the scope was broader than that. Verse 10, it's, so it's God, Noah, and his family, and every living creature that's with him. Said in verse 10, verse 12, verse 15, every living creature. Verse 11, verse 17, all flesh. Verse, four, verse 13, the whole earth. So God is making a covenant, not just with humans, but with all the earth, that he's not going to wipe it out again with water. It reminds me even of the passage in Romans 8 where it says all of creation is just longing and groaning, waiting to be like, like subjected to futility. And you see like the beautiful parts of this world, but you see a lot of this earth, even in weather patterns, just like waiting to only deliver good things, subjected to futility, waiting for this, like God to come again, which does mean we love the world that God has made. We don't worship it, but God is entering into an, what's called an everlasting covenant when God makes the new heavens and the, the new earth, purging this earth of all sin recognize this world matters to him. 
I love the picture of the rainbow. I think it would be easy to misunderstand what's going on because we would go, well, yeah, whenever we see the rainbow, we will know God. It'll be a good reminder for us, but that's actually not what the scripture says, does it? If you look a little closely, God says, that reminder in the sky is not so much for you. God says, it's for me. He actually says, every time I see it, I will remember. And again, we know what remembering means. It means he shows faithful love. He timely intervention. When God sees that, I think of you walk into a house, you know, someone's invited you over for a meal and you look on the refrigerator and you see your picture there. Or someone tells you, I have written a reminder or maybe you're on someone's wallpaper. Or so. I mean, it's reminders where you know, like, that matters to me. They want to see me. They, they value that enough to, whenever they look at that picture or look at their, look at their phone or their background, they, they will see something that will remind me, remind them of me. What is it saying when God puts something in the, in the clouds? It says, I will think of you. I will, remi- I will remember you. Embedded in the covenant signified by the rainbow is a real sense that we could and would get wiped out. I mean that. We could and would be wiped out if God were not making this covenant. We wouldn't last. Which is why it makes me so sad that we live in a world It grieves me that we live in a world that takes the sign that God has made and that God has given for such a a specific, important purpose and makes a flag of a coalition of lots of things that go right in the opposite direction of Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Genesis points specifically to what the rainbow is all about. And I've had to make, maybe like you, I've had to make a decision of what am I going to think about living in a world where what's going to go on in my heart when I see the pride flag? What I know it cannot do is it can't drive me to my own pride. It can't drive me to my own sense of moral superiority in some way where I feel proud of myself. So here's what I've had to do. If I want to understand what the, what the rainbow means in Genesis 9, what it has to do in my heart is be a reminder of the fact that we are accountable to God. We deserve God's judgment on sin, all kinds of sin. Yes, sexual sin. We are deserving of that. God could and would wipe us out without the covenant that he made, which means... Far from pride, it actually instills a level. I mean, Christians are, are humbled by that fact. We're humbled regularly by the fact. We recognize our need that the right posture before God is not one of pride, but of humility. It speaks of God's mercy and, yes, seeing our sin and still not wiping us out. I mean, the rainbow pushes me to ask, like, who am I? Who am I? Way too much of this world is based on like humans being the center of everything. And I, I have no time for that. We don't need that. And yet, God loves the world in this way. That he sent his one and only son that humans like you and me, if we would believe in him, we wouldn't perish. And so I can look at a rainbow and be reminded of God's judgment will come on sin. And that doesn't give me any pride. But it does make me feel incredibly loved. 
switching gears here because I do want, I do want you to see another image. Yet there are times where maybe you've had this experience where you're watching an, a, an episode, a program, and you're watching along and everything like seems, seems great. It seems like it's going to tie up at the end. I don't know, the person comes back into town, the couple gets back to, I mean, all, all these sorts of things, the cliched endings to where like I can turn it off and I can go to bed and everything's going to be fine in the fictional universe that is, whatever. And then they don't end there, like the credits don't roll, there's one more scene. It's like, <sighs> and then there's something dark and something sinister, the creepy person shows up or whatever. I mean, it's like something that says, like, yeah, this, is not, this isn't all tied up, it's not okay, this world's going to be a bad, I mean, all those things. And you go like, I, I just wanted this thing to resolve and apparently it's not going to resolve until next time and then you'll have to watch again unless you're a binge watcher. You just go right to the next one. And yeah, Genesis 9 does that to me. Because I would love for this to resolve of like, I'll tell you what, Noah sees the rainbow. God spares him. And Noah dies. Really faithful, living for God, putting his hope in him. That isn't what happens. Can you read with me? Verse 18, let's pick it up there. Genesis 9:18. Sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. From these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So Noah's been told, be fruitful, multiply, take dominion of the earth. So Noah became, began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk. And lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And then Shem and Japheth took a garment and they laid it on both their shoulders. They walked backward, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, curse be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. We have an altar, we have blood, we have rainbow. We have one more symbol to add. And that, that is the picture, that is the image of wine wine in the story, which will point to the fact that uh, we can still be really foolish. We can still be, and we are still foolish. It's such a pitiful, pathetic ending to the story. It's a story, by the way, this is one of those details that scripture includes where I go, yeah, I think God had to direct this (laughs) because I'm sure No one includes this in a history. These are kind of details where you would scrub those in a heartbeat. No way you would want to. I wouldn't want that story written about me. And yet God just presents it. Like, here here is who we are. Noah, the man who should have been the hero in his old age, is drunk and naked. I went to a ton of, like, Sunday school classes. I went to a ton of kids' church. I heard tons of those lessons. Plenty of youth group. Uh, lessons as well. I don't think we ever got to this portion of, of Genesis 9, right? Conveniently, this was bypassed, but I will tell you, 
like I always kept reading. And I remember in my, I'm sure my middle school adolescent days, this would have seemed like really, I, I remember reading, this would be really strange and probably, I think I would have found it somewhat humorous, but maybe one of those things you're not supposed to laugh about, but it also seemed like, what's going on there? Reading as, as an adult, I only find it sad. Extremely sad. But it's more than sad, it's shameful. It's shameful. Because you, t- you have two of Noah's sons who are at least trying to protect some dignity for their dad. Not surprisingly, your scripture doesn't get explicit. Often it doesn't. It doesn't read like that. When sexual sin is involved, often it talks in euphemism and kind of spares us some of the details of it. Although there is something that it says, like Ham did something to his father which seems to have negative sexual connotations in this context. Again, Scripture doesn't like put it all out there. So much so that whatever he did meant his son would occupy land that would be known for godless things, the land of Canaan, which obviously means a lot to uh, my wife and I, that name, because it would take years, it would take generations for God to redeem that land, that land that had been so godless and actually becomes the promised land. And Canaan is the land of promise instead of where we see it here At any age, this should get our attention, right? We have propensity. It doesn't matter what age. You're never beyond doing stupid stuff, right? Never beyond it. Never beyond it. And then the devastating impact this causes. If we think, never could happen to me, Corinthians would say, be on guard, lest you fall. What a warning. What I don't know that we fully appreciate is what this would mean in an honor-shame culture. We live with some of that, but not a ton of it, other places in the world that maybe many of you come from. You would recognize the shame this would cause on a family, much, much greater than maybe some of us who have grown up in the West. It's a shameful act that happens. And although I don't have, I don't have something like this to point to, you and I all have things that we're, we're ashamed of. We would be glad if that's that part of our life, that part of our story just never got written. But actually what I want you to think in this shameful situation involving Noah, I want you to realize that the Bible does hold up another individual who is actually stripped naked, who is despised, who is rejected, Look down upon him. I mean, it's Jesus. As he hangs there, everybody in the crowd is ashamed of what's going on there. It most definitely, like Jesus wasn't stripped naked because of his own foolishness. No, far from that. I mean, it gets personal for me because it was mine. It was my foolishness. It was my rebellion, my disobedience, my bitterness the ugly parts of my heart. And when he's on the cross, he is bearing the shame of those things. This is what scripture says. He stands in our place. He hangs in my place. He endures the shame. He is brutally mocked and humiliated by virtually every person present. Noah at least had two sons who were going to try to cover, cover the thing up, help, just cover the situation. No one... No one, though, no one rushes to Jesus' defense on that day. 
No one covers them up. Doesn't even seem like anybody tried. Yet unlike Noah on the cross, when Noah pronounces curses, Jesus does not do that. He doesn't pronounce a curse. He becomes a curse. All the evil of sin, all the dark things that should never be mentioned, all the wickedness that would come straight from the pit of hell, all the devil's awful designs, all the things our flesh without restraint would be capable of. He bears on himself and he is annihilated. Annihilated to the point of every last breath. He has to gasp for every last breath. Every last breath is gone and he's done. And he hangs his head and he dies. And in that moment he hangs his head, I do want you to know it is not just shame that is there. That is not the only picture. Actually, overriding that shame. It is a picture as he hangs his head and says it is finished. It is a picture of victory. It is a picture of his victory. It is a taste of what's going to happen three days later when he rises from the dead with all authority, never to be held in shame again, ready to offer life, ready to offer hope, ready to offer forgiveness, ready to offer reconciliation to the Father, ready to offer peace and meaning and purpose. It is victory there as he hangs his head. It's victory for him, but it's victory for us because he says it is finished. What is finished? What is finished is my debt to sin. What is finished is our slavery to sin. What is finished is the bearing of our shame. What is finished is the, de- the way we deserve to be cursed. It is over. It is over. And I don't know every one of you. I don't know every one of you, but you, I can promise you this. You have never You have never been loved and you will never be loved like the one who went to the cross for you and hung in shame. It just will never happen. You will never know love quite like that. And that's why I desperately want you to not just treat this as something that is interesting about religion. I actually don't have a card for you to sign. I don't have magic words for you to repeat. But I I am asking you, I'm asking 100% of those in this room to place your entire trust, rest your life on what the man on the cross was doing there for you. What he did for you. I would, I would call you, I would urge you to believe it with everything in you. I would tell you, like, turn from everything else, including your shame, which we all brought that shame in here. Turn from, turn from that shame and recognize, I want you also to turn from all of your and all of my crummy attempts and my sorry attempts to, to wipe away that shame and to pretend it never happened and to cover up my guilt and to make it all better. Like, leave all that behind and go to the cross and see the one who took nails, bled, and gave up his life for you. The language of Scripture is, you call in the name of the Lord. You call on the name of the Lord. What I'm I'm saying is, if you've not done that before, do it right now. 
There's an urgency about this. Because whoever calls on the name of the Lord, God has promised. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Will you do that? Will you do that? Let me pray for us. Father, I cannot change my own heart, much less any heart in this room. I can't make your son bleeding for us. I can't make that land in someone's heart where they would give their soul, their life, everything they have to you. I can't do that. But your spirit can work and open eyes to see the truth about Jesus. So I pray that you would send your spirit if we we would be those in this room who are relying and resting on Jesus and nothing else. Lord, I pray that you would save. I pray that you would rescue. I pray that you would bring life. And our hope is in Jesus. So we call on his name for salvation. Amen.